And so this month we have been diving into God's word, uh, looking at this call upon our lives that Jesus has given us to seek and save the lost. This is part three in the message series. As I've mentioned to you over the past couple Sundays, there is probably no topic that is more important and more critical for us as Christians to talk about than this topic of leading people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to keep them out of hell so they can enjoy eternity in heaven with our Lord and Savior. Amen? Such an important topic. As I was preparing for today's message, I came across this observation from one of my favorite Bible commentators. You hear me mention his name often, Warren Wearsby. And what he says here really got me thinking. Warren Wearsby writes, In most churches, the congregation pays the pastor to preach, to win the lost, and build up the saved, while the church members function as cheerleaders, if they are enthusiastic, or spectators. The converts are one baptized and given the right hand of fellowship. Then they join the other spectators. Get you thinking, right? So is he right? When it comes to sharing the gospel message, are most Christians just spectators or at best cheerleaders? Unfortunately, yes. When it comes to asking someone who has heard the gospel message, are you ready to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? When it comes to asking that critical question, are most Christians just spectators or at best cheerleaders? Sadly, yes. When someone accepts Christ and they're a baby Christian and they need to be baptized into Christ and they need to be taught all of Jesus' commands so they can grow in Christ and be discipled, are most Christians just spectators or at best cheerleaders? Yes. Why is that? Well, it's not because it's supposed to be that way. It's not supposed to be that way, right? I share the gospel and I lead people to Christ and I baptize people and I help disciple them in their new faith. Not because I'm a pastor. If I wasn't a pastor, if I had a job doing something else, I believe I would still be leading people to Christ. I would still be baptizing some people. I'd still be nurturing them in their new faith. Not because I have the spiritual gift of evangelism, because I don't. I do it because I love Jesus and I care about Jesus. Being a pastor just allows me to do this full time. It's a wonderful blessing, but if I can't do it full time, I'd still be called to do it part time because that's what Christians do. That's what Christians do. I want you to hear me loud and clear on this church. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, God has called you to share the gospel. God has called you to lead people to Christ, and he has called you to help baptize new believers and teach them God's word. That doesn't mean you're in the waters of baptism every time someone's baptized. I'm not in the waters of baptism every time someone is baptized here. But are you participating in that somehow? Are you somehow helping with that, or are you just a spectator or at best a cheerleader? Over the past two weeks, I've shared with you 10 steps to becoming a soul winner instead of a backslider. And very quickly, let me go through these again. Some of you have said, well, I've heard these already twice over the last couple weeks. Yes, this will be the third time. A study show that you need to hear something about seven times before you own it. And so you're getting off easy. This is just the third time. 
Here we go, real quickly. Number one, if you want to be a soul winner instead of a backslider, pray for yourself. Ask God to give you a burden for lost souls and to choose you to be a soul winner. Oh, how I hope you've begun praying this prayer over the last two weeks. Go to him and say, God, give me a burden for the lost. Give me a passion to see people saved and use me, God, to do it. Number two, don't just pray for yourself. Pray for others. Pray by name for the salvation of people you know who need Christ, whether it's your grandchild who couldn't care less about Jesus or church. Maybe it's your cousin that wants nothing to do with Christians. Maybe it's that friend that's strung out on drugs or alcohol. God, pray for them by name. Would you please save them? Would you soften their hard heart? Would you open their closed mind? Would you draw them unto Christ? And would you give me the opportunity to see with my own eyes them coming to Christ? Pray for them. Number three, memorize a few strategic Bible verses. And I've especially emphasized Romans 6.23 over the last couple weeks. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hide these verses on your mind and heart. Number four, learn a simple, clear gospel presentation and practice sharing it. So I introduced you a couple weeks ago to this wonderful illustration, the bridge illustration. And last Wednesday at our soul winning clinic, the 25 of us that were a part of that, uh, we went over this once again and practiced sharing it. Remember, you can do this on a scratch piece of paper, a dry erase board, or even a napkin at a table at a restaurant. If you have a napkin and a pen, you can share this bridge illustration. You put on one side us, and on the other side God. God created us to be with him. Awesome, isn't it? But there's a problem, isn't there? And then you can write the verse at the top that I just gave you, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We see that God created us to be with him, but our sin separates us from God. And that's a tragedy, isn't it? And our sin can't be removed by good deeds. Sometimes we draw a little dotted line from where we are, our side of the cliff to God, but we're always going to fall short because the wages of sin is death. It's kind of like this. If you volunteer every day of your life at the local pregnancy center, at the local food kitchen, at the local homeless shelter, if you volunteer every day of your life and then you go out and shoot someone dead, first-degree murder, if you stand before a judge Is he going to say, you know what, because you volunteered at the homeless shelter every day of your life, I'm going to let you slide on murder one? Absolutely not, would he? One single sin puts you in the slammer. One single felony, you're incarcerated. It doesn't matter how many good things you did. And so we let the person know the bad news is no matter what good we do, our sin separates us from God. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. But you know what? The good news is the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus is our bridge to God. He built a bridge to God so that we could be with God forever. And that's what eternity is. We get to be with God forever. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more funerals, no more cancer. Praise God, it's going to be awesome. This simple illustration, all you need is a pen and a napkin. And you can lead someone to Christ. Now, some of you, this hasn't quite sunk in yet. That's okay. Come on Wednesday and we'll practice sharing this. This is one of the most important things you could ever learn as a Christian. How you can, when the moment presents itself, when the Holy Spirit says, go get them. You know how to share the gospel in a clear and understandable way in under five minutes. Every Christian needs to know how to do that. How to share the gospel clearly. 
in just a few short minutes with that person sitting across from you. Well, step number five. Step number five, always be packing gospel tracts, church invitation cards, a good Christian book, or a link to a website. Now, if you weren't here last week, last week we gave out what I call our soul-winning packs. They look like this. And every, everyone last week got one. It's got a couple of these great little gospel tracts and a couple invitations to, to church here. If you weren't here last week or didn't get one on the way in this morning, just raise your hand. Jim and Diane will get one into your hand. We want everyone to have this. Have these guys in your back pocket, ladies in your purse. We've got extras in the lobby. You can have these in the glove compartment of your car. Have them on hand. Because as I shared with you last week, God gave me an opportunity to reach out to two different people the Monday before last, and I only had one card with me, so I blew it. I wasn't ready for that opportunity God gave me. So always have these on hand. Be packing. Amen? We have a concealed carry permit here at Impact Christian Church, and we don't even, you know, need to to go down to San Bernardino to get that. Your concealed carry is to carry the gospel with you at all times. You'd be ready to show that. And, and give it to someone in need. Number six, sixth step to being a soul winner. Live a consistent Christian life. Remember to humbly love, learn, and serve in plain view of others. Remember, if you live like hell, they're not going to be interested in hearing you talk about heaven. Number seven, be intentional about building relationships with non-Christians and take the initiative to steer conversations to Christ. If you are talking with a friend, building a relationship with a friend, and expecting them to eventually say, hey, can I go to church with you on Sunday? It'll likely never happen. You need to take the initiative. Amen. Did you need one, Carlos? Okay. Let's get him all set here. There you go, brother. All right, number seven, be intentional about building relationships with others and take the initiative to steer conversations to Christ. I think I skipped six, didn't I? No, I didn't. Uh, Number eight, post gospel-centered content on social media. Don't just post the feel-good Bible verses. Post scriptures that issue a clear call to Christ and post links to some of the excellent gospel-centered content available online. Number nine, bring at least one Christian with you to church every month this year. Next Sunday is the final Sunday in January. So if you haven't done this yet, I expect lots of first-time visitors next week. Bring someone to church with you next Sunday that doesn't have a church home. Bring someone to church with you that doesn't know Christ. Several of you in the room today are living at the shelter. I'm so glad you're our next-door neighbors. It's the shortest walk of anyone who came to church today. And so bring your friends and the new neighbors over there to church next week. It's a wonderful way that we can help share the gospel. Bring them to church. Amen. This is a great environment for people to hear the gospel. Finally, number 10, two by two. Do not do this alone. Those first nine steps, you're probably not going to carry them out past January very effectively if you don't have a soul-winning partner. So get yourself a buddy. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a Christian brother or sister here. I encourage boy, boy, girl, girl. Team up with someone and help carry out these nine first steps together to win people to Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, with that, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 28, where we'll take a closer look at one of the most important passages in the New Testament that most Christians ignore. By the time we get here to the end of chapter 28 of Matthew, Jesus has already risen from the dead. He's appeared on several occasions uh, to his 11 remaining apostles. Now Jesus is, is back in northern Israel as we pick up here in verse 16. He's back in that region of Galilee in northern Israel, and he gives some final marching orders to his followers. Now this vital teaching of Jesus 
is usually referred to as the Great Commission. Say that with me. The Great Commission. It's that great marching order that Jesus gives to his followers. We call it the Great Commission. Picking up here in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 28. Please follow along in your Bibles. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Well, in Luke 24 and in John 20, Luke and John tell us that Jesus appeared to 10 of his 11 remaining apostles on Easter Sunday, the day he rose from the dead. Now, some of you may ask, well, why are there only 11 apostles? I thought he chose 12. Yes, but remember that when Jesus was arrested, one of his 12 had betrayed him, Judas Iscariot. In the following morning, when Jesus was sentenced to be crucified, Judas Iscariot found out about that, was overcome with guilt, and went out and hung himself. So as of Easter morning, Judas Iscariot was no longer. And so at the time Jesus rose from the dead, there were just 11 of the 12 apostles left. And that evening, Jesus showed himself to 10 of them, according to Luke and John. Now, where was the 11th? The 11th was... Thomas, sometimes referred to as Doubting Thomas. He wasn't there on Easter evening. Uh, He was at a timeshare presentation across town. No, we don't know where Thomas was. We're not told, but he wasn't there. But the following Sunday, one week after Easter Sunday, Thomas was there. And so all 11 saw Jesus a week after Easter. So here in Matthew 28, Matthew records for us another one of Jesus' appearings, which most likely took place a couple weeks after his resurrection. Jesus had instructed his apostles to meet him on a certain day at a specific mountain in Galilee, a place that his disciples seem to have known well. So some Bible scholars believe there were more than just the 11 apostles here on this mountain in Galilee on this day in Matthew 28. Some believe, as they look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the Apostle Paul says, Jesus, on one occasion after his resurrection, appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time. So some Bible scholars think the 500 appearance was right here in Matthew 28. And so imagine the mountainside with more than 500. If there were 500 brothers, in all likelihood, there were some sisters there too, right, ladies? And so this is a huge crowd, some think. But whether it was only 11 or over 500, the fact remains what Jesus tells them is vital. Before we look more closely at what Jesus tells them, I think it's important for us to understand that it's no coincidence that Jesus and his apostles are in this specific location. Remember, Jesus never did anything by accident. They are in Galilee, the region in northern Israel where Jesus had spent almost his entire life. He had grown up in Nazareth, a town in Galilee. 
When he began his ministry and ministered for three-plus years, most of that three-year active public ministry was in Galilee. Most of the miracles he performed were in Galilee. Most of the sermons he taught were in Galilee. The great sermon on the mount that he preached was there in Galilee. All of this, most of it at least, took place in Galilee. So I don't think it's any accident that he's back in that home region where he had done most of his ministry. I also don't think it's an accident that he's on a mountain. He's on a mountain. So, why is he on a mountain? Some Bible scholars think he's on a mountain for this reason. They think, you can go to this next slide here, they think that perhaps Jesus is on a mountain to announce to his followers that he's the new Moses, the giver of new commandments. That's kind of cool to think about, huh? Moses was on Mount Sinai, remember? When he was given the two tablets, the Ten Commandments, and the other laws God gave. And so if Moses was on Mount Sinai, maybe Jesus strategically places himself on a mountain in Israel, letting him know, I'm going to give an even more important commandment than any of the ten. Huh, could be. Look at verse 17. According to verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Now, that sounds kind of strange to our ears. If he appeared to 10 of his 11 apostles on the very day he rose from the grave, on Easter, if he appeared again to them, plus Thomas, a week later, by the time he's here on this mountain in Galilee, most of those 11 apostles have seen Jesus at least two times in his resurrected form. And on at least one of those occasions, he passed through a wall and a locked door And then showed his hands and feet to him. So this dude's passing through walls and rematerializing where they can touch his hands and feet. And he asks for fish and he eats right in front of them. And yet for some reason they're still doubting Jesus here. How could that possibly be? Well, there's a Greek word that's used here. The word that's translated as doubted. That is a little bit different than how we understand doubt. The Greek word translated here as doubted doesn't refer to a fixed, lasting, permanent unbelief. Instead, it refers to a state of uncertainty and hesitation. This word, this Greek word, is used one other time in the New Testament, and it appears when Peter is walking on water and, oopsies, begins to sink. Remember that? As he's sinking, Jesus reaches out and saves him, pulls him back to the service, and basically shakes his head saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So what is Jesus saying to Peter as Peter is sinking? He's not saying to Peter, why do you have this permanent, fixed, unchanging disbelief? We all know that Peter snapped out of it. And he trusted in Jesus Christ once again, right? So it wasn't a permanent disbelief. It was a temporary hesitation, wasn't it, that caused him to sink. It was a temporary uncertainty that Peter had. And the same is true. Even though these 11 apostles had already seen Jesus at least two times, some of them were a little uncertain when they saw Jesus in the distance cresting that mountain and coming toward them. Some of them weren't sure at first it was Jesus. Others were certain at first. Here on this Galilee mountain, some of them were doubting, but as Jesus got closer and closer and began to minister to them and speak to them, it was just a few short minutes and all of them believed and worshipped. Amen? 
It didn't take long for that hesitancy and that uncertainty to dissipate. So I want you to think about your own family and friends. Some of your family and friends are a little slow to learn, aren't they? Some of your family and friends, when it comes to hearing you plainly share the good news of Jesus Christ with them, they're a bit hesitant, aren't they? Some of them are hesitant. Some of them are uncertain. Praise God for those ones that hear it once and they're ready to go. Man, you're right. I need Jesus Christ. And they accept him. And they're off and running. I was like, that was easy. I'm going to try it with my other family member. We try with the other family member and they're like, that is not necessarily a fixed permanent unbelief. You hold on to faith and you pray in faith. God, I pray that that reaction as drastic as it was, as harsh as it was, as steeped in unbelief as it appeared to be, I pray that that is just a temporary hesitancy. I pray, oh God, that that is just a a temporary slowness to receive the truth of the gospel. But we continue to pray that God would lift the veil so they can see the truth of the light of the gospel of Christ. That God would open their closed minds and he would soften their hard hearts. Uh, They're not permanently apart from God. They're just temporarily disconnected. You know, uh, they just have some hesitancy. We need to hear that. Don't be discouraged. Keep sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Keep being salt and light in your family and your neighborhood. Keep doing what you're doing because so many around you that seem like they are never going to accept Christ are just temporarily hesitant. Well, Jesus Christ isn't just some random guy barking out commands willy-nilly here in this passage. The Father in heaven, it says, he has all authority. Jesus has All authority. Notice what he says in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Read that with me if you would. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Read it like you mean it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew, the writer of this first gospel account, has a lot to say about the authority of Jesus. He talks about the authority of of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 7, verse 29. He talks about the authority in Jesus' healing ministry in Matthew 8, verses 1 through 13. He talks about Jesus' authority to forgive sins in Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. And then he talks about his authority over Satan and his ability to delegate that authority to his apostles in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. We looked at that scripture just last week. And here at the close of his gospel account, Matthew makes it clear that Jesus, wait for it, has all authority. Amen? Amen. He has all authority. It doesn't say Jesus has 95% authority. Jesus doesn't go to his apostles on the mountainside and say 99.9% of authority has been given unto me by the Father in heaven. He says all. And the last time I checked, all means All means all. All authority. All authority. Say that with me. All authority. The Father in heaven has given him all authority to say what he's about to say and give the command he's about to give. And here is that command in verses 19 and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, here's something very important we're going to talk about for a couple moments. There's actually only one direct command given in the Great Commission. 
And surprisingly, the direct command is not go. Go, literally, in the original Greek, is a present participle. Isn't that exciting? Any hallelujahs for present participles? Like, that's great, Pastor. Uh, I can't say amen because what's a present participle? A present participle is basically a verb with an ing ending. And so what it does, a couple examples down here, teaching and baptizing. Baptizing and teaching are also participles. And so it's not a direct command baptize. It's not a direct command teach. It is a description of how you carry out the single command he gives, make disciples. And so here, to help this kind of be a little more clear, here is a literal translation of what Jesus is commanding here in this passage. Here it is. You can put up that slide. As you are going. See the difference? As you are going, disciple all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So notice that Jesus doesn't command us to go. He assumes that you and I are already going. See the difference? He assumes we're already going. So Jesus doesn't say, carve out a day and time once or twice a year to invite someone to church. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, carve out a a day and time once or twice a year to leave the church building and go do evangelism and go be my witness. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say on Christmas and Easter, make sure you invite at least one person to church. Jesus doesn't say that. Every once in a while, flip your mental switch and start caring about the souls around you who are heading to hell without me. Jesus doesn't say any of that. Jesus isn't talking here about squeezing something into your busy schedule. In fact, he hates it when we compartmentalize our Christianity and shove them into a little corner of our lives for one hour on a Sunday morning. He hates that. He hates it when we shove them into a little box on Christmas Or on Easter. That's when we invite people. That's when we tell people about Jesus. That's when we care. He's not interested in that. Jesus is talking about a way of life. As you are going. As you are going. As you are going. As you are going to work. As you are going to school. As you are going to the gym. As you're going to your doctor's appointments, as you're going on a walk in your neighborhood, as you're going to Winco, as you're going even to Walmart, as you're going to wherever it is that you are going, make disciples of all nations. Jesus isn't mixing up our routine here. He's simply saying, as you go about your day-to-day life, take Jesus with you. And as you take Jesus with you, make sure you take those opportunities to lead people to him when you're there. And that includes going out to eat. No, 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 that's my R&R time. Jesus says, no, it ain't. You can relax and introduce people to Jesus at the same time. Maybe think of it as not your R&R time, your R&E time. Rest and evangelize. R&W time, rest and witness. R&T time, rest and tell people about Jesus. 
you're there anyway. You might as well point people to Jesus Christ. You see, that's the reason he didn't just save you and snatch you right up to heaven because he's still got some work for you and me to do while we're still here. If there's a beat still in your heart, if there's still breath in your lungs, he's not through with you here yet. And you are far too valuable to sit on the sidelines as a spectator or at best a cheerleader. So what is a disciple? He says, make disciples of all nations. What exactly does that mean? Well, a disciple is a student, a learner, and a follower. Say those three with me. A disciple is a student, a learner, and a follower. That's what a disciple is. Jesus isn't interested in converts, people who convert to Christianity just to grab some fire insurance to stay out of hell. Jesus is interested in true, born-again disciples, men and women who have truly repented of their sins, gotten baptized, and are learning to obey all of Jesus' commands because they've placed Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of their lives. Jesus isn't just their Savior. He's also what? He's also their Lord, isn't he? He's not interested in people grabbing him for fire insurance. He didn't come here to give fire insurance. He came to make disciples. Notice... When I asked you about whether or not you're out in doing this, I want you to notice that I didn't ask you if you're simply supporting your pastor to go out and do this. If you're a part of this church, you're probably doing that already. But I want you to really ask yourself this important question. Am I making disciples? Let me ask you, are you making disciples? A disciple is a student, a learner, a follower. It's Jesus' one command here in the Great Commission. Make disciples. Make disciples. Make disciples. So I've just got to ask you, church, are you making disciples? I'm not asking, are you tithing to the church so that your pastor can make disciples? I'm not asking you if you're financially supporting a missionary or two who are out there on the mission field in some other country, so they can make disciples. As important as those things are for your pastor to be involved in disciple-making and for your missionaries to be involved in disciple-making, I'm asking you, are you making disciples? Are you making them? As you're going about your daily routine, are you leading people to Jesus? Are you actively sharing your Christian faith with the people around you, letting them know who Jesus is and what he did for them on the cross? Are you helping at all with new believers' baptisms? Are you helping to teach Jesus' commands to new Christians? If you're not, I'm not here to sugarcoat the truth. I've just got to tell you the truth. You're being disobedient. And you're not just being disobedient to some peripheral command that Jesus may have given on an off day. You're being disobedient to one of the greatest commands he ever gave his followers. The great commission. The final marching orders. Between then and the point in time he splits through those clouds and comes back to take us home. It's the most important command he gave between his ascension and his return when he raptures the church. Go and make disciples. Make disciples. Make disciples. I love how Warren Wearsby says it. He says it so well. He says, Christianity is a missionary faith. The very nature of God demands this because God is love. And God is not willing that any should perish, according to 2 Peter 3.9. Our Lord's death on the cross was for the whole world. If we are children of God and share his nature, then we will want to tell the good news to the lost world. Isn't that true? Please, Christians, 
When it comes to winning souls for Christ, don't just be a spectator. Don't even just be an enthusiastic cheerleader. Be an obedient witness for Jesus Christ. Well, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he had some wonderful heart-to-heart talks with his disciples. This was one of them on that mountain in Galilee. Another one of those heart-to-heart conversations where Jesus explained the Great Commission with slightly different words is recorded for us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And in Acts 1-8, Luke tells us that Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, said this to his followers, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, This is such a great verse. That's actually the theme verse of the entire book of Acts. You look at the first seven chapters, and that is the disciples and the early Christians reaching Jerusalem. It's in the first seven chapters of Acts. Then we get into chapter 8. A great persecution breaks out against the church. And all the Christians, except for the apostles, were kicked out of Jerusalem and chased into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. And then we get over to chapter 9, and a certain man by the name of Saul, his name was later changed to Paul. He was converted on the road to Damascus, and God called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles outside of the regions around Israel. And so we find the gospel in those final chapters of Acts spreading to the uttermost parts of the world. That was the mission he gave them. Be my witnesses. Be my witnesses. Christianity is a missionary faith. Therefore, Impact Christian Church is a missionary church. Don't miss this. We as a church are not a concert hall. We are not a theater where nice, upstanding citizens go to be entertained. We are not a social club for people who just want to hang out and eat some good donuts. We are a mission station. We are a mission station here in the city of Victorville that exists to be Jesus' witnesses in the Victor Valley. We exist to make Jesus' followers disciples here in the high desert. Why do we do that? Because the high desert, particularly the city of Victorville and the surrounding community in the Victor Valley, this is our Jerusalem. This is our Jerusalem. And therefore, we are a mission station, first and foremost, in Our Jerusalem, right here in the Victor Valley. As a church, we financially support missionaries around the world. That's for certain. We support missionaries outside the high desert in our Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Some of these that we support are as far away as Southeast Asia. I think that's pretty awesome. We support them as Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. But make no mistake about it, the Victor Valley is our Jerusalem. The Victor Valley is your Jerusalem, and congratulations, you're called to reach it. You're called to be a missionary for Jesus Christ right here. You're called to be a witness for Jesus Christ right here. You're called to be a disciple maker for Jesus right here. I want to show you a picture of our missionaries in Southeast Asia. Some of you are new to Impact in the last year or two, and you've never had the privilege of meeting Joel or his wife, Marilyn Kopong. They have been missionaries in Southeast Asia, particularly in Thailand, in Burma, and a couple other countries I can't mention publicly because they're not supposed to be there, but they're there sharing the gospel anyway. They've been missionaries there for decades. Joel is awesome. Some of you have met Joel. How many of you have met Joel? Yeah. 
He was here last time on furlough, maybe four years ago. So awesome. He stayed at my house a few nights. Great guy. Went jogging with him and, and just an amazing man that loves the Lord. And one of the people groups that he reaches out to in Thailand are the famous long-necked people. Here's a photo. So many of you have seen pictures like this, National Geographic, some of the you know, documentary shows, maybe the History Channel. And this is one of those tribes that's famous for putting those gold rings around their young girls' necks. And as the years go by, they add more and more rings, actually not stretching their necks. They're actually pushing their shoulders down. By the time you have a senior lady in the community like these two ladies here, uh, it looks like their neck is this long. That's one of the many tribes that Joel ministers to. And the truth is, in all likelihood, you will never be called by Jesus Christ to go and minister personally to the long neck people. He's assigned Joel to do that. Joel speaks 11 languages. So God has chosen Joel and his team to do that. God will most likely never call you to reach the long neck people. But I don't want you to miss this. Joel is no more called to be a missionary there then you are called to be a missionary here. He is called to be Jesus' witness there. You are called to be Jesus' witness here. You receive that today? Because it's true. Somewhere along the way, the devil has convinced most of us that it's okay to be soul-winning spectators and cheerleaders. But it's a lie. You are far too valuable to Jesus' mission to be sitting on the sidelines. Believe it and act accordingly. You are a missionary. You are a witness. You are a disciple maker, especially within your oikos. Those of you who come from High Desert Church, you're familiar with that word. Over at High Desert Church for many years, Pastor Tom Mercer has emphasized to the church that God has called us to reach our oikos. What is an oikos? That is the Greek word used in the New Testament for household. And I love how Pastor Tom has defined this over the years. What is my oikos? It's this. Your oikos is made up of 8 to 15 people that God has supernaturally and strategically placed in your life for you to reach for Christ. Your oikos is your circle of influence. So think about that for a moment. God has supernaturally and strategically placed certain people around you so that you could reach them for Jesus. Isn't that pretty awesome? The people in your life that you have relationships with are not there by accident. God has supernaturally and strategically placed you in their lives to impact them for Jesus. And he has supernaturally... And strategically place them in your life so that they could be influenced by you. God has been orchestrating all the pieces. And some of you may say, how did I end up in Victorville of all places? I thought Victorville, when I lived down the hill where it's a little cooler, I thought Victorville was the next thing to hell. How did I end up here? It's not an accident. I'm here because I lost my job. No, you're not here because you lost your job. You're here because Jesus wanted you here. Why am I in the neighborhood I'm in? I don't like that neighborhood. It's a terrible neighborhood. I'm going to get out of here as fast as I can. You're not in that neighborhood by accident. You're not in that apartment complex by accident. Those of you who are here from the shelter, you are not in that shelter by accident. 
God has supernaturally and strategically placed you where you are so that you could lead others to him that he doesn't want to have go to hell, but he wants to have with him in heaven. God has been so strategic in his move to place you where you are and placing those individuals around you. You're 8 to 15. And Jesus says to you today, go get them. Go get them. That ornery neighbor isn't next to you for no reason. Go get them. That family member that you tell, no, we're not having Thanksgiving dinner this year as a family because you don't want them at the table. Go get them. That friend that's off doing his stupid stuff and he got bit by the stupid bug and and that bug keeps biting him and he's being stupid. Go and get him. Go and get him. They need a witness. So he says, go. I am sending you. They need a missionary. He says, go. I am sending you. They need a discipler. Once they accept Christ, Jesus says, go. I am sending you. I am sending you. So I want to ask you, church, how are you going to respond? Not just together, you individually. Don't just think I'm talking to the person next to you. How are you going to respond? What are you going to do? Are you going to be a disobedient spectator? Are you going to be an enthusiastic yet still disobedient cheerleader? It doesn't help to be enthusiastic if you're still disobeying. Are you going to be an obedient discipler, witness, missionary for Jesus Christ? To reach your oikos for Christ. I hope and pray that you'll make the right choice. Because souls really do depend on it. God is calling you. He's calling you. And I'm here to help. And this church is here to help however we can. To lead your friends and family. And your oikos to Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you have us here for a reason. We thank you for that. Lord, as much as we might like selfishly to have been snatched up to heaven the moment we were saved, because, Lord, we've been exposed to a lot of stuff that is not pleasurable here on earth since the point we've been saved. Lord, selfishly, we want to be in heaven now. But, Lord, you have a plan. And that plan does not include us being in heaven in this very moment. But being here on earth to bring heaven to our corner of the world. Help us, Lord, as we leave this place today to take Jesus with us. And as we are going, to lead people to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God is good. And all the time. God doesn't promise you next week. Sometimes we have someone come and they've said a prayer to receive Christ, but for whatever reason, no one ever told them they need to be baptized. In the book of Acts, when someone accepted Christ, they were baptized that very day. They didn't drag their feet until even tomorrow. So we heated up the baptistry earlier. If you need to be baptized, let us know. We'll baptize you today. If you need to rededicate your life, we had a young man come forward last week and said, you know, I accepted Christ. I was baptized years ago, but I've fallen away. He rededicated his life last week. Maybe you need to make that same decision. We like to share here at Impact the ABCs. A, admit that you are a sinner. B, believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He's your only way to be saved. And C, choose to begin following him today. If you're ready to make that decision, rededicate your life, get baptized. Whatever that decision is, or maybe you just need prayer, 
you come and we'll be up here. Caesar, Karen will be up here for a few minutes. Let us know if we can pray for you, if we can minister to you. So before I let you go, first-time visitors, check in at the back. They've got the gift for you. Could use a few more to sign up for the community cleanup day uh, next Saturday. And don't forget, Wednesday, 6 p.m. right here as we finish up that soul-winning clinic. Let's learn how to put wheels to what I've been teaching you over the last couple Sundays. Learn to share Jesus with those around us so we can see people get saved. Amen? God bless you. Have a great week.